All right, let's take our Bibles this evening and uh, let's see. We're going to end up over in Galatians. We're going to look at a number of passages of Scripture this evening. And so uh, just have your Bibles ready for uh, wherever we will be going. This evening, we're going to uh, look a final time at this subject of sanctification. I really uh, uh, would like to have a couple of weeks for this final uh, walk through some important information about sanctification. But I looked at the calendar, and this is the last Sunday night that I am speaking, uh, I think, this year. I, I don't know if there's another Sunday night until January. But we have a number of special things happening between now and, of course, we've got the Thanksgiving feast. And, and we don't have a Sunday night service because we're here till around 3, 34 o'clock with the Thanksgiving feast and things like that. And so this is my last chance uh, before January uh, to wrap up this subject of sanctification. So I, I put it down a little bit more notes than normal in a kind of a Bible study handout kind of format for you to be able to take home, and I want to just step through some of that and introduce this last topic regarding sanctification. We have, in the last few Sunday nights, we've been looking at sanctification. We've talked about what sanctification means, and sanctification means becoming like Christ. That's the meaning of, thanks, uh, of sanctification. We looked at the process of sanctification. And that process of how we become sanctified is a matter of seeing Jesus Christ in the Bible. And then the Spirit of God taking what we see in the Bible and incorporating that into our lives and behavior. And so the process of sanctification happens through the Spirit of God using the Bible to shape our lives. And that's why it's critical that we have maximum exposure to the Bible. That we're reading it, we're studying it, we're, we're in services where it is taught, where it is preached. And that the Bible has, a, uh, has much opportunity uh, to get into our minds and into our hearts. Because that is the process by which God makes us like Christ. Or transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. So the meaning of sanctification is becoming like Christ. The process is seeing Jesus Christ's character's principle, his nature in the Word of God and the Spirit of God transforming us into that image that we see. Last time we looked at the result of sanctification. When, when that work is successful, when the Holy Spirit is successful in conforming us to the image of Christ, the result is the fruit of the Spirit. Our lives begin to demonstrate the fruit that the Holy Spirit has produced in us, in our character, in the way we think, and how we react, how we talk to people, how we care about people. And so the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, uh, kindness, temperance, all these things that the Holy Spirit brings out of our character and displays before the world the character of Christ. That result is the display of the fruit of the Spirit. This evening, I want us to take one final step, and that is the confusion that revolves around sanctification. Where do rules fit in? Where do standards fit in? How do standards and rules fit into the concept of holiness? The person and character of Christ being formed in us. And so I have uh, a couple of thoughts here. Number one, confusion regarding sanctification, freedom, and standards. A couple of verses Galatians 5.1, the Bible says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. God says you're free. Don't let anyone put you in a yoke of bondage. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom. There's liberty. Wherever the Spirit of God is in control of a life. Now, in my lifetime, verses like that have, have resulted in a question mark with regards to rules. 
and standards of living. I mean, if we're if we've been made free, if where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, then we're free. No more rules, no more regulations, no more don't do this and and do this. Uh, we're free. We're free from bondage. We're free from rules. We're free from standards. Don't tell me how to live my life. Freedom and liberty. It. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But what does that mean? Does that mean there's, I'm free from law, I'm free from standards, I'm free from rules, I'm free from, uh, from, from having to do what I'm told to do? Well, in my lifetime, there has been a huge shift in Christian thinking that has brought the idea of liberty and freedom into the realm of holiness And has birthed a generation in Christianity that says, don't tell me how to live my life. I'll live the way I think I need to live it. I'm free. Don't put me in bondage with your standards and with your rules. Is that what God is saying? Is that what the Bible teaches? Someone who emphasizes the idea that freedom and liberty means no rules, no laws, no standards. People who who have adopted that line of thinking, when they, when they hear of or they talk with a church or a Christian, somebody, who is uh, taking a strong position regarding how God wants his children to live, they call those people or those churches by the name legalists. And legalist is a very negative word as it's used Today, to be a legalist is, is really a put-down. The word legalist means you're harsh and you're unloving and you're opinionated. And all you care about is laws and rules and standards and regulations. And don't do this and do that. And, and, uh, and the people that would believe that holiness requires some rules, they will often characterize those people as People that are always looking for somebody else's faults and magnifying those faults. Legalists, very negative term. And Christians or churches who believe that God does want us to have rules or standards in our lives, uh, they will often come up with a list of appropriate actions or a list of things that are taboos that you shouldn't do, and they'll call those lists standards. They seldom are they called rules. They're usually called standards. Now, just for fun, tell me, I'm not asking you to tell me what you think about them, but tell me what some of the appropriate actions that you have heard growing up in Christianity, rules of things that you should do. What are some positive instructions you've heard on the list of things that you should do as a Christian? Church attendance? attendance? Lee Roberson, all his ministry, Highland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, one of his sayings was, free to thrive, free to thrive. He used to to say that all the time. Free to thrive. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, free to thrive. Church attendance. Every time the doors are open, church attendance. That he was known for that, uh, that, of course, was an exceptional individual. The work that God did through his life all over the world. Um, one of the greats. Something else. What, what have you heard? Is a, this is a, a, something that you should do as a Christian. Tithe. Give to God. What you, what you give to the Lord as a, as a uh, contribution to finance his work all over the world. What else? Dress standards, how to dress, what, what you should wear uh, to be, to display a modesty. What else? Hmm? Devotions. Read your Bible, pray every day, have personal devotions. These are all positive things that have been taught to Christian people. If you want to be holy, if you want to live a Christian life, these are the things you should do. How about some of the negative things? How about some of the taboo lists? What are some things that you heard growing up that uh, Christians should not 
What are some of the things? What was that? Listening to secular music. Going to the movies. I heard wire rim glasses. Don't wear wire rim glasses. Didn't know what didn't know what glasses I had on tonight. What else? Don't drink alcohol. What else? Don't grow a beard. What else? I heard somebody. Don't dance. No dancing. Don't uh, girls. Don't, no guys don't wear long hair. Language. The words you use. Particularly words referring to Jesus Christ. Immodest apparel. No swearing. Things that were a part of the rules, that standards of living, things Christians don't do. And you know all those things, most of them, if not all of them, were rooted in some passage of Scripture, something that, uh, that was a concern of a parent or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher to try to protect young people, except for maybe wiring glasses. I'm not sure about that one, but to try to protect young people from worldliness. And, and they became a list of taboos or a list of, of things that Christians just don't do. Uh, and... Uh, and how does that fit when the Bible says, don't let anyone put you under bondage. You're liberty. You're free. You've been freed from the law. Don't let anyone put you in bondage. And so the controversy regarding standards or rules has become an important controversy in my lifetime over the years. Um, that I've been involved in ministry, those who uphold an identifiable list of acceptable standards are branded as legalists, and those who emphasize freedom to do as one pleases claims that it's the result of grace. The grace of God has freed me from bondage. Don't put me under your rules. Don't put me in bondage. How does all that work out? Well, let me go to what I have down on your little worksheet is number two. Some clarity about freedom from the law. Freedom from law. I read a passage in Galatians and a passage in Second Corinthians, both of which are dealing with liberty and freedom from law. But is that freedom from any law? Freedom from all law? No, when you study carefully Galatians and Romans... There was a law that God had given, and the purpose of that law was to cause people to realize that they couldn't keep it. That's the dispensation of law. That's the Mosaic law. That's the Ten Commandments, summarized in the Ten Commandments. What Jesus used in the soul-winning experience, we looked at the last few Sunday mornings. Uh, The law was the Ten Commandments that people were put under to try to earn their salvation, not because God thought they could earn their salvation, but because they thought they could earn their salvation. And so God put them under the law in order for them to come to grips with the reality that I can't keep God's standard. I don't measure up to God's standard. And therefore, I am guilty before God. Freedom from the law was freedom from the from that law that was killing me, that law that was demanding of me, you've got to do all of this to go to heaven. And when I finally came to the point that I realized there was nothing I could do to keep all that law, I'm a guilty sinner and I can't fix my problem. And I fall at the feet of, the, of Jesus Christ and beg for mercy. And Jesus saves me. He makes me free from the law. I'll no longer try to keep the Ten Commandments to be good enough to go to heaven. I'll no longer try to earn favor with God. 
I'm free from the law. Well, Philip Bliss was talking about that when he wrote the song, Once for All. Great song. He lived in Ohio and Pennsylvania back in the late 1800s. He wrote the song, the gospel song, Free from the Law. Oh, happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall. Grace hath redeemed us once for all. Now we're free. There's no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me, O hear his sweet call. Come. And he saves us once for all. Freedom and liberty is freedom from the law as a means of salvation. And I'm free from that law by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not talking about free from rules. It's not talking about free from standards of living. It's talking about free from the Mosaic law that I was broken by because I couldn't earn God's favor. I I put down some references there on your little worksheet there, Galatians 3 and 5, Romans 3, 7, 8, 2 Corinthians 3, all passages that deal with what are we free from. We're free from the law as a means of salvation. And because I'm free from the law, I have great bliss in my life because I'm no longer under law for salvation. Now, turn over to Romans chapter 7, and let me show you a statement in Romans chapter 7, then we'll jump into number 3 on your little uh, handout there. Romans chapter 7. There's so many passages in in Galatians 5 and Romans 8 or 2 that I wanted to read, but I think I'll skip those for time's sake tonight. Just go to Romans 7, because Romans 7 has a, a powerful statement. It's really, it uses an illustration to show what we're free from, but what that freedom doesn't mean. Uh, in verse in chapter seven, uh, he is comparing being free from the law to a woman being free from her husband due to her husband's death. And so verse number two says, uh, verse number one says, know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. If you understand, he's, he's writing to the church in Rome, but but in order to understand what he's saying, you've got to know the Jew, the, the uh, Jewish law. You've got to have an understanding of the dispensation of law. You've got to understand what happened on Mount Sinai, what God said to Israel. So he says, I'm talking to you who know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she's an adulteress. But if her husband's dead, she's free from that law. So that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now, this is not a passage on divorce and remarriage or or any of that stuff. He's using an illustration of marriage to show us something important. I was under the law. Keep these ten commandments from the cradle of the grave and you can come to heaven. And I couldn't do that. But I was under that law. And that law was demanding. And that law told me, if you step out of line one time... Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. If you keep the whole law and offend in one point, you're guilty of all. That law was demanding of me. But when I got saved, I died to that law. And I was free from that law. So now I'm free from law. So now I can live the way I want to live? No. Verse number four says, wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. I'm not dead to all law. I'm dead to one law, the Mosaic law, that I might be married to a new law and that new law. To whom I am married is the person of Jesus Christ. Verse number six says, now you're delivered from the law that being dead wherein you were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We're no longer under that Mosaic law, but we're not free from the law so that we can live lawless. We're not free from the law so that we don't have any rules to follow. We're free from the law that we might be married to a new husband. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And his law is a law of spirit. It's a law of life. It's a law of joy. It's a law of bliss. It's a law of relationship that's meaningful. And so this freedom from the law is a freedom from the law as a means to salvation. It's not freedom from all law. Well, let's go to number three on your little worksheet. Some clarity on standards and holiness. I want you to turn to a couple of passages here with me. Go over to Philippians chapter number three. I want you to see what the Bible says about the relationship between holiness. We're talking about sanctification or holiness. We're talking about the nature of Christ being formed in us so that we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We're talking about our lives taking on the character of God by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. As we learn about Christ, what does this have to do with rules or standards? In Philippians chapter 3, and in verse number 15, the Bible says, Let us, this is written to a church, let us therefore as many as be perfect. That word perfect is the word for whole or complete. This is a word which speaks of maturity or wholeness or development, complete development. In other words, a spiritually mature person, a person who is matured in their Christian life so that they are not sinlessly perfect, but they're whole and complete and mature. As many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if anything and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, whereunto we, are, we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. Paul said, you need to find some members of the church that live like I live. He said, I'm not there with you. He birthed the church, but he's not there anymore. He hadn't been there. He started it 10 years prior. He said, you need to find people that live like I live and use them as your examples, your role models. Live up to the character of their lives. Make sure you find people that walk by the same rule, mind the same thing, are like-minded, and let there be a... A mentorship of your lives together here. See, the desire to mark them uh, which walk so, as you have us for an example, is the desire to live to a standard of godliness and living that, that will uh, enable the church to be healthy and strong. You see, loving and walking with a holy God requires a holy life. And sanctification is a process whereby we're growing into that holiness. And to help us to grow into that holiness, we need to be able to live the way our leaders live, the ones that are mentoring us, that we walk by the same rule, that we mind the same thing, that we live according to the life that has been set before us as the appropriate way to live the Christian life and to follow that leadership that we're able to find. Turn over to First Thessalonians chapter, chapter number 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Another church that God used the Apostle Paul to plant. And uh, in this, uh, this church, it was very young. It was much younger when he wrote this letter than what the Philippian church was when he wrote the Philippian letter. So he wrote to this very young church in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 1. He says, furthermore, then... We beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. He reminded them, you know, when I first met you and when I preached the gospel and you got saved and we planted this church, I, you received from me how to live, how to walk in such a way that God will be pleased with the way that you live. So I'm writing to you to encourage you to abound in that more and more. Verse number two, for ye know what commandments we gave you. Now here we have an example in the New Testament where the, the church planter 
established a written list, a list of commandments for the new converts to govern their behavior. He said, you remember, I gave you commandments to live by. I've told you how to live your life in order to be able to please our God. And so I'm encouraging you to abound in those instructions that you received early in your Christianity. Why? Verse 3 says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. It's the will of God for the process of your sanctification for you to keep the rules I gave you. The word commandment there, by the way, is, a, is the same word that was used in the military of a, of a, uh, a higher up giving a command, uh, a, a higher officer giving a, a command to a subordinate. And so Paul used the very term for a, some, a list of commands that would govern behavior. And Paul said, I gave you this list of commands. Now, I want you to follow them. I want you to live according to those instructions in order to be pleasing to God. Because it's God's will that you be sanctified. It's God's will that you become holy. And so I'm encouraging you to live according to the standards I've given you, the commands that I've given you. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. And then he went on and he talked about a specific area of their lives. Apparently, uh, there was some problems in the church with immorality and uh, in the culture around them, perhaps even in the church itself. Uh, and so Paul then applied what he was saying to a specific area of their lives, an area of morality. But the premise was that as young converts early in their Christianity, they were taught how to live in order to please God. And those instructions came in the form of a list of commandments that would govern their behavior. And they were encouraged to obey those commandments, to follow them, and even to abound more and more in order to be able to be pleasing to God. So... Uh, an important passage on this subject of whether or not standards and rules have any place in Christianity. Flip over a couple of pages to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter number 2. Here in what we call the pastoral epistles, Paul is writing to Titus to encourage him as a pastor as to how he goes about teaching the people that he pastors. And he had dealt with some practical things in chapter 2 for the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. He'd gone through a, a list of, of instructions with regards to Christian living. And then I want you to notice how he summarized it in verse number 11. It begins with the word for. And you know that when you run across the word for, it's generally telling you for this reason. Whatever he said before it. Now, you do that for this reason. And so we're given the reason and the motivation for what I've been told to do. So I'm told how to live for this reason. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that. And notice what he said. The grace of God brought you salvation. What is that? Freedom from the law. The grace of God brought you salvation or freedom from the law. You're free. You're free from the law as a means of salvation. You're free from the bondage of the law for, for a way to get saved. You're free. Now, the same grace of God that brought you freedom from the law as a means of salvation then teaches you how to live, teaching us that, and you'll notice he phrases it in some negative language. Negative language. He's teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Then he uses positive language. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So the same grace of God that brought me freedom brings me instructions on how to live by way of not doing some things. Denying some things in my life, things that are not like God, things that are of worldly desires. 
And then to begin to live soberly. The word sober speaks of, of being in control. Soberly. In control. Soberly. Righteously. Godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And purifying to himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So the, the grace of God that made you free from the law as a means of salvation then gives you instructions on how to live. Because the freedom we have in Christ is not freedom from rules or freedom from standards or freedom from instructions on what not to do and what to do. But rather the same grace that freed me from the law as a means of salvation, immediately begins to teach me how to live under a new law, a new husband, Jesus Christ, how to please him, how to live for him, how to stay away from the things that offend him, how to say no to some things as I, as I put away and stay away from the things that are ungodly and of worldly lusts. And how to say yes to some things that are godly and righteous and pure. The same grace of God that frees me brings me under a new set of regulations. But they have a different purpose. They're not to earn salvation under the threat of being sent to hell. They're to please. 1 Corinthians 4.1 They're to please the God who died for me. The one who gave everything up to rescue me, to please my dad, to make him proud of me. This is not keeping a law that's cringing and demanding and if you step out of line, I'll send you to hell. I'm free from that. And now I have the privilege of saying no to some things and saying yes to some things in order to please my dad and make him proud of me as his child. Now, as a preacher... The very next verse, verse 15 says, Paul said to Titus, now you need to speak these things in the churches that you're ministering in. You need to speak these things and then you need to exhort. It's a little bit stronger. And then you need to rebuke. That's even stronger. He says to Titus as a pastor, you need to speak these things to the children of God, so they'll know and understand theology and doctrine and God's expectations and God's purposes. And then, if you've spoken that and people are still living worldly and are not doing the right things, then you need to ramp it up a little bit and you need to exhort them. Exhorting is a little stronger than speaking. It's urging people that this is important. God really does care about this. You really need to give this some attention. Now, if people still don't respond, you need to ramp it up a little bit more and you need to begin to rebuke them with all authority. And don't let anyone in the church despise you for teaching and preaching the holiness of God. So that's the instructions he gives to preachers who are preaching the Word of God, parents who are training their children, Sunday school teachers, Christian workers who are mentoring people. We need to speak, we need to urge or exhort, and we need to rebuke because these things are important. Let me, let me jump over one, one other place here, and then I want to wrap it up. In 1 Peter chapter 4, just showing you some, uh, just a, a smattering of verses where... God's talking about the importance of holiness of life. The, the things we don't do as Christians. The things we do as Christians. And the fact that this has a place in Christianity. It, freedom from the law does not take us away from rules and regulations and standards. They're all through the New Testament. Here in 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4, 1 says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves 
Likewise, with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. So Jesus Christ suffered and died for you. Now you arm yourself with the same determination that you will live a life ceased from sin. No longer are you going to live the rest of your life according to worldliness. But you're going to live according to the will of God. And then he began to get particular. He said, for in time past, our lives may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness. That means no restraint. Lust, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Some will say of you, you mean you don't go to, you mean you won't go to see, you mean you won't. And then they mock Christians, make fun of Christians as of what we won't do. And Peter said, you had enough time before you got saved to live that kind of a life. Don't live that kind of a life now. And when they mock you and they mock, laugh at you and they, and they uh, speak evil of you, just let it roll off your back. You arm yourself with the determination that you're going to live a life that ceased from sin. Just like Jesus Christ armed himself with the determination to die on the cross and nothing would turn him from that path. And so live a life that's not characterized by the culture around you. And let them mock you all they want. But you do the right thing. And so, again, I'm just showing you a smattering of verses where, where the Bible says that there are instructions on how to live our lives. And every generation's got to take those principles and instructions. I was talking to, I was talking to Dave Summerdorf when he was here, and he was sharing with me that he had preached the message a number of years ago. And he's getting ready to, he's restudying it because he's going to preach it again sometime in the near future. But it was a message on the, the differences of of specific instructions of God on what to do or what not to do, and then the principles that the Bible contains that we apply to certain things to make decisions on what to do or what not to do, and then the preferences we have in life that we just feel that this would be the right thing or the wrong thing, and how we handle those preferences. Specific commands... Specific principles, specific preferences. I'm looking forward. I've told him I want, I want him to send me the message when he preaches it. And uh, we were dialoguing back and forth because of this sanctification study I was preparing for. And I sent him some things I had uncovered. And, and he promised to send me the message. You know, this is something that every generation has got to wrestle with. You know, my wife has never once been in a movie theater. Never once stepped inside of a drive-in. Or a movie theater of any kind. She grew up being taught that that wasn't an appropriate thing for Christians to do. And she, to this day, has that as a strong preference in her heart. Now, she doesn't tell anyone else they should or shouldn't do that. But that's a preference in her heart that she lives by. And would feel guilty if she went into a movie theater or into a drive-in theater. You know, there's some things that we do in life because we've come to the conclusion that this is just... The best thing for me. And, and whether other people do this or don't do this, this is, the, this is what I feel comfortable between me and my Heavenly Father with. And every generation has got to wrestle with those things. What is required of Christians? And we've got to wrestle with that because these are important, important things. I, I put at the top of the, the flip side of the page... Uh, a question, does obeying standards make me holy? And I say wholeheartedly and with emphasis, no, no, a thousand times no. Keeping a list of standards doesn't make a person like Christ. Not doing all the things that Christians aren't supposed to do and doing all the things Christians are supposed to do will never make me holy. And when... People have come across with that as an insinuation that, that, that if you do this, if you dress this way, cut your hair this way, go these places, don't go those places, do this, don't do this, do all of these rules and standards, that that equals holiness. It does not equal holiness. 
Keeping rules doesn't make you holy. But if you are holy, you will live according to the instructions and rules that God sets down. You see, keeping rules doesn't make me holy. It reflects the character of my heart. It reflects the character of Christ in my heart. And so it is very important that we teach our young people that keeping rules doesn't make you good. Being good makes you welcome the rules and live by them. It's not what I do that makes me holy. It's my holiness that makes me do what I do. And that is supremely, supremely important. Let me also just say that Jesus Christ addressed this. I've given you just a couple of statements there. There's a passage of Scripture uh, that I've taught on before where Jesus dealt with the scribes and the Pharisees over the matter of, of uh, inward, the, the heart versus the exterior. And there's some thoughts about that you might want to look at sometime. Let me wrap it up with number five. Is there room for differences? Is it possible to love Jesus and to walk with Jesus and yet not live exactly according to the standards that somebody else says I ought to live by? And I would say, yes, 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 that is very possible. I have pondered that many times in my life. Why is one person so convinced that something is wrong and another person isn't the least bit convicted by it? Why are there differences and is there room for differences? And I would say, yes, there's room for differences. Why are there differences? And as I ponder that, there are a couple of things. There's three things I, I just put down as number one, two, and three. Some reasons why I think differences do occur. One of them is the development of conscience. The development of conscience. You see, our consciences develop gradually, each of us. When we got saved, we came into salvation with some baggage. Some traditions, some habits, some lifestyles that might have come from our parents, might have come from our upbringing, might have come from our culture. We've got some ideas and thoughts on what's right and what's wrong. We come in to salvation. And the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we must go through a process whereby our mind is renewed. We're told not to conform to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's a gradual process. As we renew our minds by the Word of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that the Holy Spirit gradually changes us. We become more holy the longer we live walking with Christ. And so therefore, in any group of people... Where you have people that have been saved for six months, a year, people have been saved for 30 or 40 years. You're going to have some, some widely divergent levels of maturity, levels of conviction, levels of what I feel is right and what I feel is wrong. I think that's one of the reasons why there, that, that sometimes some people can just not see eye to eye on some things that that uh, might be right or wrong for a Christian to do because of the difference in levels of maturity. The passage we read in Philippians a few moments ago uh, told us that, that we're, we're to... A, a, by the way, uh, Philippians, uh, the, the, the book of Philippians is all about unity in the church. And he said, as many of us as are mature, are perfect, are mature, let us mind the same thing. Let us come to unity. Find people that agree and let's have unity. It's important for there to be a, a recognition that we're not all on the same level. Uh, Greg Mann once told me that a preacher that influenced his life once, once said, uh, and he was speaking to, to young people, to teenagers, and it goes into this thing of the development of conscience that pr happens as a process in life. He said, as a young person... Ride on your parents' convictions until you get to the point where you develop some of your own. Ride on your parents' convictions until you get to the point where you have developed some of your own. That's good counsel for young people. Young people that don't have life experience, they don't see where something's going to go. They don't see, if I do this, where's it going to lead? Where's it going to lead 
Where's it going to lead? Mom and dad can see down the road further. They can see where it's going to lead. And they can say to their kids, you know, we're, we're not going to do that. Is our, our family's not going to do that. Other families may. We don't do that at our family. Because I can see further down the road. And until you're old enough to develop some maturity, spiritual godliness, where you can see down the road and make some decisions regarding convictions and standards of living, then just ride on your mom and dad's standards and live those out until down the road when you get some of your own. Another thing is the mistraining of conscience, the mistraining. There's some passages I mentioned there in, the, in, the, in your little worksheet. Sometimes... There's been some miseducation, some mistraining with regards to what is right and wrong. We see that with the weaker brethren in Romans and the eating of meat, sacrifice to idols in First Corinthians. And, and, uh, and there's, just, there's just sometimes people are taught wrong. And that develops a difference of opinion on convictions and standards. And then the third thing is the failure of teaching when pastors don't teach what's right and what's wrong. And that's another possibility why people don't develop convictions and standards. Here's, uh, here's the end of the day. At the end of the day, you see two, uh, one and a two. At the end of the day, unity in the church and attitude. Unity of the church and attitude is so extremely important. If you take the verses I, I gave there, the Philippians 1.27 is all about unity, and that's the context of what he said in chapter 3. The Corinthian letter was all about reclaiming unity, and that was the background of chapter 11, verse 14 to 16. And the appeal to the church to be united. When we are in unity, we're stronger as a people. Unity is strength. Rugged individualism weakens any organization. It does in your home. If you're a teenager, say, well, I want to watch so-and-so, or I want to go so-and-so, or I want to do such-and-such. And you say to them, live the way you want to live. That weakens the family structure. But when you say to them, I'm older than you, these are the things we're going to do, these are the things we're not going to do, and you follow that, you strengthen the family structure. Unity strengthens Rugged individualism, no one's going to tell me how to live, I'm going to do what I want to do, weakens. And we see that in the unity passages, uh, appealing to a church for unity so that the church can be strong. And the second thing is attitude. One of the things that in some of the things I've read and, and scanning the Internet and what people say about fundamentalism and legalism and rules and standards and everything that has been has been called into question in my lifetime. Uh, one of the things that keeps coming up is the attitude. The attitude. When someone has a right position but holds it with a critical, angry spirit, that weakens and hurts. Attitude is so critical. Love and kindness and a desire to be understanding should be among the highest rules and standards that are required. I had said that uh, in my lifetime we've had a lot of we've had a lot of change in the way Christians have viewed holiness. Typically, I um, I have a high respect for uh, Chuck Swindoll, phenomenal individual, phenomenal ministry over his lifetime, phenomenal communicator. But he did something that I think has hurt a lot of churches. Back in 1990, he published a book entitled Grace Awakening. And he gave voice to the idea that if you have rules, you're a legalist. And he painted all churches and preachers that have standards of living and that emphasize holiness in the life of people. He painted them with some pretty sharp language, some of the terms and some of the descriptions, and he broad brush painted everyone that holds to rules and standards as being caustic and, and demanding and wanting to control people's lives. And, and it was very, uh, very, uh, uns uh, it was out of character for Chuck Swindoll. He hurt a lot of pastors. It was back in 1990. A man by the name of Ernest Pickering, who's dead and in heaven now, was hurt by that. Because he knew from his heart that he had given his life to help young people live holy lives. He had given his life to try to help people understand that holiness is important. That God 
upholds holiness as an important value in practical lifestyle issues. And when he read that book, it cut him to the heart because of how it characterized him as being manipulative and controlling and wanting to control other people's lives by giving them rules. And so he wrote a reply. I'm trying to get... I'm trying to get copies of it, but he's dead and it's not published. And so I don't know if I can. I'm trying to get permission to, to photocopy it. It's the name of it is our fundamentalist legalist, a reply to Charles Schwindel. And it is a very gracious reply that defended the scriptures position of what I've shared with you the last few weeks and particularly tonight as he appealed to Chuck Schwindel to not characterize preachers and churches of being manipulative and controlling if they encourage people to live holy lives. And I think it would be a great uh, little booklet for you to read. And I'm, I'm trying to get, if I can't find copies, I'm trying to get permission to photocopy it and make it available. Because in the world in which we live today, there are churches after churches after churches that will not deal with holiness and they let people live any way they want, and they call it grace. They call it grace living. No rules, no standards, live like you want. We're all under grace. And that is a, that is a, a contradiction of New Testament theology in my understanding of my studies. And so I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll let you know when we get it. And uh, you dads may want to read it. It's an important... It is particularly important in the day in which we live today because holiness has been attacked by a generation of pastors who have used grace as an excuse to let people live any way they want. And it spawned a generation of evangelical preachers that watch X-rated movies and, and they live in their practical and their personal life. They, they have you no... Know, Standards of, of holiness, and I've had them tell me. I've seen their websites. I've seen what they say, and and it, it's impacting churches. And so it's important to to be able to have an understanding of how God views sanctification, and the confusion that has come about sanctification. Where in the Bible we can get some clarity on that.